You are Locked On Kentucky, your daily Kentucky Wildcats podcast, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Welcome to the Locked On Kentucky Podcast. We bring you info and insights on UK football and basketball every weekday. Stay informed by making us part of your morning or afternoon commute. Listen and follow for free on Apple or Google Podcasts. Simply subscribe to Locked On Kentucky. I'm Dan Reefer with Fox 56 along with Kyle Tucker of The Athletic. On this episode of Locked On Kentucky, part two of our conversation with ESPN's Michael Eaves. If you heard part one yesterday... I got to be honest with you, I saved the best for today's episode. Great stories from Michael about his time at UK. And if you missed the first part of our conversation with Michael, just a little refresher, a little background. He grew up in Hopkins County, Kentucky. That's the Madisonville area out west, western part of the state. And then he went to UK on to his first job as a sportscaster at WKYT in Lexington. And now he is a sports center anchor. Surely you have seen him. If you are listening to the Locked On Kentucky podcast, I can't imagine that you aren't familiar with Michael Eaves, but just in case you weren't. A damn good anchor, by the way, I might add. Our interview with Michael continues beginning with his years as a student at UK. So Michael, you you graduated from Kentucky when? Early 90s, when was that? 94. 94. So you were, you, uh, this is probably then an easy answer, but we've one of the things we've been doing at The Athletic and I know you've been doing uh, at ESPN is it, to sort of fill this gap with no basketball, no NCAA tournament, no NBA, is relive old games, old memories. Mm-hmm. You know, we've done greatest game I ever covered and greatest game played on this date in history. Um, you, I think you responded on Twitter. I did a thing on the Wichita State game in 2014. Uh, but I'll let you answer this. Your, your greatest memory, Kentucky-related um, memory, from that wow. time when you were in school, it's it's it, here's what it is. The the most memorable games to me when I was in school or when I first started working were all losses. Right. Um, yeah. They were like the first time Arkansas entered the SEC, they played in Rupp Arena that season. That was Todd Day, Maber that 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 squad, right? Corliss Williamson, and they came to like they came to Rupp Arena and beat Kentucky. I was at that game. Um, then there was the Duke game in 92. I remember watching it on, on TV in my apartment, but I already knew what we we're going to Once Sean Woods hit that bullshit shot, we knew what we were going to do to celebrate. We're going to the corner of Euclid Woodland and, and kill it. And then yeah. that, that didn't work out. Um, and then 93, I was at the Superdome when they lost to the Fab Five in overtime, right? Mm. So all of the most memorable games for me were all losses. That 97 Final Four overtime, I was at that game. I wasn't at the 96 game or the 98 game. I was back in Lexington. I went to the 97 game, and they lose. <laughs> so all those games, the most memorable for me, were all losses, which is kind of weird. I will say this. The very first game I saw in Rupp Arena, and a lot of people find this hard to believe considering I, I spent my entire life growing up in Kentucky, I never saw a Sweet 16 game in Rupp Arena. I only saw one at Freedom Hall, which is also one of the best games I've ever seen in my life, but that's another story. Um, the first game I saw was my freshman year when Kentucky played Kansas. And that was the year after they had got boat raced in Lawrence, right? Yeah. And that was my first Kentucky game. It was also the only time I've ever sat upstairs in the upper in the upper arena of of, uh, of Rupp. I've never sat up there since that one game. Oh, wow. wow. But that was the first game I saw. Luckily, they did win that game. So, which, you know, that just sort of fortified my experience as a Kentucky student. But, yeah, like 
so many of the memorable games, dude, have all been losses. You mentioned that, like a lot of the Kentucky fans have, have gone crazy because, like, all you know, all these networks, CBS and ESPN, airing old games, are like it's all all of our heartbreaking losses. And you think a program <laughs> that's won nine, uh, eight national championships and is always kind of almost every decade has been relevant um, is also going to have a bunch of those. And you think about how close Kentucky is to having 10, 11, 12, yeah. you know, and so on championships, even just in the Cal era, but going further back, you talk about some of those games you're, you're, you're referencing. It is crazy to think for all the big moments and big wins Kentucky has, they have some just brutal losses in their history. Well, here, here's my thing. And I understand why Kentucky fans feel that way because they want to be reminded of why they support their team because they've been winners. But oftentimes, the greatest winners have also been some of the, the best losers, so to speak. Jack Nicholas has more uh, golf major championships than anybody else, but he also has the most seconds, right? I mean, think about how many times that Phil Mickelson has finished second at the U.S. Open. Like, you have to be great to lose in those moments, right? And, and that's a hard thing for people to understand because they just want to feel good about it. But so many of the Kentucky championships, the final games themselves weren't that great. They right. really weren't, right? So it's not just about Kentucky fans. It's about basketball fans as a whole, maybe the best game was, was 98 because they were trailing like they did that entire run to the Final Four, and they actually came back and won again. So that was better than a 96 win. Um, that was better than a 2010 win. Um, so I understand that these games that Kentucky's been involved in that were showing, whether it's CBS or ESPN, is because they were memorable not because Kentucky played, but because of what happened in the actual game, right? Yeah, and, and it feels like, too, the, the greatest joy of winning comes after some sort of misery. Like Tiger Woods finally winning a major again after being in total exile and, and misery yeah, and, and thinking maybe he'd never win one again. Like the joy you saw in his face winning that one doesn't happen if he doesn't have – how, well, how many years was it? Five, six years of just total misery? It's more than that, actually, because his last was in 2008. So, so it, yeah. it was like, a while. Like, but he, like nine years of misery? Yeah. But here's the thing, like, so the 96 championship felt so good because of the probation era that Patino brought the program out of, all right? The 98 win in the, in the region final over Duke felt so good because of the 92 loss in the yes. region final to yeah. Duke, right? All those things mattered based on the emotion you felt prior to something that made you feel good about it. And so, yeah, sometimes you have to have those, those heartbreaking moments to feel as much joy as you can when they do win. Yeah, and that Kansas game that you talk about that you saw in Rupp Arena where Kentucky won the year after Correct. Patino had gone out there and uh, I think it's Got Roy Williams is yeah, cussing at him. Uh, Patino's like, uh, hey, Roy Williams is like, hey, call off the press, all right? We're killing you, destroying you. And Patino's like, nope, I'm pressing you. Screw you. I'm continuing to do this. And it was 140 to whatever, uh, 140 to whatever the final score was there. But I, I want to know about, since you were there at Kentucky as a student during that time that – you know, the end of Eddie Sutton, the probation, and the beginning of Rick Pitino. Uh, tell me what that time was like, what you remember from there, and then kind of seeing that rise up for when you, by the time you leave in 94, uh, Kentucky's in the Final Four. Yeah, I mean, like, you know, growing up in Kentucky, you, you, you live and breathe with the program, right? So when they went on probation, I mean, that was heartbreaking to a high school kid like me. I was even in high school then. I guess I was in high school um, because – you expect them to be in the tournament every year with a chance to go in and try to win a championship. So for them not even be able to, to participate was heartbreaking. And then when Patino comes in, he, you know, he was deemed this savior who was going to take us out of this rut and get us back to this level of competition. And 
my freshman Jamal Mashburn and I were same same class at Kentucky, right? So yeah. we ended up being friends. But you know his his arrival on campus and mine were the same time, and he was the dude more well, I wouldn't say more so than Patino, but because of Patino, Jamal was there, and Jamal was the player that elevated the program back to where it should have been all along. And so to experience that as someone who grew up in Kentucky, but also being close to Mash. Cause he and I hung out on campus, went to you know parties and stuff. I was always at the lodge when I was a student at UK to be able to be that close to it without actually being on the team for me was really cool. But then the losses felt more personal as well, right? Yeah. Because this dude I know, and then my good friend, Henry Thomas and all these dudes, you know, Walter McCarty and Tony Delk, all these dudes were all friends of mine because I was on campus same time they were, and they're going through these, a loss here or there, like, oh, damn, I feel bad for them because they're my boys and they're trying to win this championship. So that's why 92 felt so bad because, I mean, I went to John Pelfrey's um, bachelor party. Like, I was in, went to Travis Ford's wedding. Like, I was tight with these dudes and to see Feldhouse and Richie and Sean go through that, that was hard for me. And then 93, dude, going to 93, that run they had through the tournament, everyone knew they were going to win the championship. They were the number one team on Sports Illustrated going to that weekend. And Jalen Rose had told me a while ago, and he actually said it again in that 30 for 30 they did on the Fab Five, they thought beating Kentucky in that national semifinal was the real national championship game. They didn't think either Kansas or North Carolina was going to be a team they had to be concerned with. They thought beating Kentucky was the big deal, and he says they had a letdown because of that when they played North Carolina in the championship game. Wow. That loss was huge for me because I drove from Lexington to New Orleans overnight with some friends. Slept on, uh, I forgot whose floor I slept on. One of the, slept in the team hotel on somebody's floor. Got up the next morning, <laughs> went to Bourbon Street, got drunk as hell on Hurricanes <laughs> at Pat O'Brien. Then we walked from the quarter to the Superdome, which is not a short walk. Uh, right. It helped me sober up, though, but I was drunk as hell on the way over there. And then watching that game and then going to Bourbon Street afterwards, right? And so I hung wow. up that night with Jamal and Tony Delk. Now, Jamal, if you remember, had already said he was going pro prior to that tournament run. On senior night, he came out and basically said goodbye to the crowd as well. And then we get to Bourbon Street, and I was like, I don't know how he was going to be, if he was going to be down and depressed, whatever. He's like, yo, Eves, let's get a drink. I'm like, all right, bet. And he says, cheers to my college career. And then we just had a good time. Like I was like, good. And so so we get back to Lexington the next morning on the front page of the Herald-Leader. It's a, me, it's a shot of me, Mash, and Tony Delk. And Tony didn't drink. Still doesn't drink. It's, and it shows three of us. It says, Jamal Mashburn, Tony Delk, and Fan on <laughs> Bourbon Street <laughs> in New Orleans following their loss. And someone sent that picture to me a while ago, and I remember the thing vividly. But, yeah, those, those, those moments were so personal to me just because I was so close to the guys involved in them. We will pick up right there where we left off with Michael and discuss his transition from a U.K. student to sportscaster covering the Cats during that run in 1996, 97, and 98. Also, we jump ahead to the 2015 Final Four. Remember how TNT and TBS had those Homer broadcasts using local guys to do the games? Well, Michael was the sideline reporter for that 2015 Final Four game against Wisconsin. His insights from covering that game coming up when Locked On Kentucky continues. You are Locked On Kentucky. 
your daily Kentucky Wildcats podcast. We're back here on Locked on Kentucky. When we left off our conversation with Michael Eaves, he was talking about the friendships he had made in college UK with guys like Jamal Mashburn and Tony Delk. We pick it back up right there. Wow. Well, see, I was at UK from, you know, 96 through 99. So I lived through that 96, 97, 98, you know, yeah. run to the championship game. And uh, fr- a, a good friend of mine, uh, was roommates and had a house on Aylesford with one of the managers uh, under Bill Kitely. Okay. And so, like, Wayne Turner would come over, Jamal McGlure would come over, and, you know, those guys would be partying with us. So I've got some stories that are not safe for podcasts on those guys. But <laughs> You know, it's interesting, that- Dan, because I was still in Lexington because I was still working at KYT. I left KYT in the fall of 99, right? So I go from a student that had the 92 game to Duke, the 93 loss to um, – Michigan, and then 94 was a terrible year. They lost to Marquette, I think, in a round of 32, not even making the Sweet 16. Yeah. So then I started working for KYT, and my view of the team changed, right? Because I don't know if it was a, I don't think it was a conscious decision. I really think it was just subconscious. Going from a student and a fan to someone who actually has to cover the team and then go ask right. questions to the coaches and players, your perspective has to change if you're going to do that job effectively, and mine did. But you take that look in, in 95, they lost in the region final to North Carolina. 96, they won a championship. 97, they lose to Arizona in, double, in overtime. And then 98, Tubby's first year, they go on and win the championship, right? And so that was the run I also had as a broadcaster in Lexington. And that was a different thing altogether as well. But that stretch run from 92 to 99 for me as a student and a broadcaster in Lexington, I don't know if they'll have a run like that ever, just because of where it came from off of probation and that, and that loss of Duke in 92, and then to winning you know, a couple championships during that time. Amazing. That's an amazing time to be in those positions. It's kind of crazy how they almost sort of replicated it. You know, you go from the Billy Clyde era in the NIT Ugh. to the early years of Cal. You know, my, I came here in 2011-12, so my first year covering the team, they won the national championship. The next year they had the crazy NIT year with New Orleans getting hurt, but then it was national championship game with those crazy Aaron Harrison shots. And then uh, uh, 38-0 going into the Final Four with Wisconsin. They were in three Final Fours in four years. It was like in the Elite Eight, the you know Final Four the year before that, the Elite mm-hmm. Eight the year before that. Um, yeah. it's been, they've had some interesting cycles up and down at Kentucky. Yeah, and I'll say this. Um, I remember when – they were getting rid of Tubby, and they hired that guy that you mentioned. I refuse to say his name. Um, <laughs> I said then that Calipari should not take that job at that moment because Kentucky was going to go after him at first, and then they end up on oh boy. But when uh, oh dude failed, which I thought he would, that was the perfect time for Cal to come in. And because of that, I think the entire arc of Cal's time in Lexington has been different because of what he was coming off of when he first – took that program over. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It's It's been a tremendous run for him because of A, where it started. But also, there were a couple of those teams he had, college. you mentioned, that you know, got to the championship game. It was like, how the hell did this team get to the Final Four? Really? Right. right? I mean, there's some luck involved and some clutch play at, at other times. But it has been a tremendous run. But you also remember the losses. Like, how did that 2010 team not win? Right? right. How did that 2015 team not win? So you have that one championship, but I think a lot of Kentucky fans right now also have that heartbreak of at least one or two of those they should have won and they didn't. Yeah, they've got Cal's got a crazy list of of what ifs. 
Yeah. You know, I mean, if they had a shooter, if, if, if he'd been able to talk Jody Meeks into staying around for his first year, <laughs> the one thing they were missing, you had Jody Meeks and John Wall and Eric Bledsoe all together uh, when they couldn't hit a three in that loss to West Virginia. Um, you know, 2015, it was the one guy that they needed. It's the most loaded team ever, but the one guy they needed had torn his ACL, Alex Poitras. He'd been the stopper the first time they played Wisconsin the year before, and they can't stop him. You know, got the lead with five minutes to go. I think they were up four or five minutes to go. Uh, shot clock violation that doesn't get called in that game. Um, a bunch of stuff. You know what bothers uh, yeah. me the most about that game, though? Um, so, you know, that's when Turner and CBS were still doing those um, team casts, whatever they called them. Yes, the Homer so casts. I, yeah. So I was this, I was the sideline reporter for that game, right? Um, was Rob Bromley on the mic? No, that was Rob did it the year before. This It was Dave Baker and, and Rex. Okay. Dave yeah. Rex and me was a broadcast team for that. And if you remember the game before in the region final against Notre Dame, Carl Anthony Towns went off in the second half. He might have had like yeah. 20 points in the second half. They kept feeding him on the block, and he would score. And in this game, in Indy, they had Frank Kaminsky guarding Carl Anthony Towns, and they did not go to the same thing that yeah. was beneficial to them against Notre Dame in the second half against Frank Kaminsky and Wisconsin, and it was driving me crazy. Like I'm, I'm going onto the court. I'm trying to get as close as I can to the huddles and hear what they're saying. And you know, Cal's doing his, his, his. Let's go, rebound, yeah. run. You know, that's what he does. I mean, that's part of his thing. That's his motivation tactic. But I, I wanted to literally go into that huddle and tell them to um, <laughs> give Carl Anthony the damn ball on the freaking block. It's Kaminsky guarding him. That still bothers me to this day. Now I'm not saying. If they had gone to it, it would have worked. But it should have been the thing they did go to, and they didn't. And that bothers me more than anything about that game. Certainly at the end of the game. And people were you, – you you, and about, uh, I don't know, how many people are in Kentucky? Four million people probably uh, have that same frustration. I'm sure. I, I, some people some some people get frustrated about Euless and Booker not playing. I have no issue with that but uh, because you, you rode the Harrison twins for two years into the Final Four. Uh, but you had to you had to make it clear to those two guys who basically took every you know made every play and took every shot at the end of that game. Uh, this time you need to give it to Carl. I I, I definitely agree with that. That's yeah, a, that best, is a great what if. He was the best player on the floor, right? And they kept running high screen and roll for him. Right? Granted, he's going to be doing that when he gets in the NBA. Everyone knows that. But right Matt, right here right now, bro, we need a bucket. And Kaminsky cannot check you on the block. So go down there, hit these turnarounds, and let's take this championship home. Well, Calder, if- you may remember this. I think that John Calipari said to like uh, – he was at a coach's clinic or something, so it was off the record. But somebody leaked it out after that game. Because uh, didn't didn't Kentucky have three straight shot clock violations yes. going down against Wisconsin? And he yes. said – he said, my whole plan was I was telling Aaron and Andrew, get the ball inside to Carl. And the reason they had the shot clock violations is they couldn't find an avenue, a path to get it in there. And he said, had I put Tyler Eulis in the game – we would have gotten the ball to Carl Anthony Towns. Mm. But my loyalty to Andrew and Aaron, I can't take one of them or both of them out of the game at that point on this stage because of what it would say about them. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that, people aren't going to like that. But, uh, no, they're I, not. I, but that, but that, is a, that is a true aspect of coaching. It is. And the average fan will never be able to understand that because they haven't been in that environment to understand that dynamic, but that is real. And that's at every level. I mean, it happens in the NBA too. It really does. Um, it's a little different in the NBA because guys are getting paid and you know you can move it, maneuver things here or there. But in that situation, yeah, because those dudes that already hit shots to get you to the final four, so why wouldn't they do it there? My contention with 
Kentucky's offense back then and talking to some former players and everybody still around the program is that the reason they kept getting to those shot clock violations, they would just run this high ball action off the top of the key where they're passing the ball off, but they're not going anywhere. And then like 15, 12 seconds to go on the shot clock, then they try to get it to some action. Yeah, then, the famous so, circle, the circle, that's how Cal, thank he, you. he runs circle uh, to Correct. run down the clock in every tight game that he's ever been in in his, in his life. Yeah. Exactly, right? But at certain times, it's useless because you're just giving the defense time to rest, set up, and then you have to play defense for 10 seconds as opposed to, you know, 25 or 30. Well, my thing was, if you're, if you're trying to get the ball to Carl Anthony Towns and you're down or you need a bucket, go to that shit immediately, yes. <laughs> right? Yeah. Why are you waiting? Yeah. Go to it right now. The only Whatever. consolation I have for Kentucky fans is I think if Cal had finished that season 40-0, that would have been it for him at Kentucky. You think he would have gone? I mean, because that's the ultimate, like, you can't ever say anything to me. That, that is uh, the ultimate <laughs> mind drop. There's no question. You know, and, and, you know, some point, if he'd done that, and manage those egos to get to 40 and 0 all those NBA guys surely an NBA I mean that would have been a pretty easy sell if you're an NBA team looking for a head coach at that point yeah but you know what I, I think 38 and 1 is a pretty good sell too to be quite honest with you it I mean, is it is but then you, I, you know a lot of people will hang that on it they, a lot of people hang that on him as uh, as a as proof he can't coach you know what I mean like when you when you can't get it done with the best team ever assembled uh, you know, ten deep with NBA guys. That a lot of people sell it that way. I think if he'd finished it off, the the perception. But you know, you, you're you're at. I was going to say the national perception, but you're you're at a place that sort of helps shape that national perception. Maybe I'm wrong. Well, I, I, let me say this. I don't. ESPN doesn't shape the perception of Cal. Fans have their own perception based on their loyalties to their respective teams, whether that's Kentucky or someone else. I think anyone who wants to criticize Cal will do that because it's easy to do. But how many times does the best team in the country not win the championship? Okay, let's be real. That is one of yeah. the true beauties of this tournament is that the best team is not guaranteed to win. And oftentimes the best team doesn't win, right? If you can go through all the years of some of the greatest tournaments, it's because the best team did not win. And anything can happen here or there. I mean, I mean, if you go back to that 2015 game, and I'm, I'm not trying to harp on Cal at all. I'm just saying from a from a basketball standpoint, things that frustrated me watching this because in that moment, I wasn't the same broadcaster that I usually am, right? Because I was working for the team broadcast. I wanted the team to win, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, Decker went off in that game. Like, he, he was all of a sudden, man, that dude's going to be a pro now, right? So that was different. Nigel Hayes was doing stuff that you didn't necessarily expect him to be able to do against those particular players. Some of that stuff is luck. Some of that stuff, guys just get hot. But people who want to bag on Cal can hang it on them because they just want to, and it's the easiest thing. It's low-hanging fruit. Right, so it's the easy thing to criticize him because he didn't win it that particular year. But they don't give him credit for getting to those championship games that you mentioned, where they didn't lose, where they didn't win, but they didn't have any business being there in the first place. So either it's all or nothing. Usually with Cal, it depends on your perspective. That's yeah, and sure. you can you can throw 2010 on Cal as well because he couldn't figure out Bob Huggins' uh, zone to be able to u- utilize Demarcus Cousins better than he did. Because at the end of that game, Cousins is sitting on the bench, and he and Cal are going back and forth because. Cal can't figure out how to get the ball into Cousins against that zone. Absolutely. Like, I mean, and uh, Huggins has been running that zone for a while. I mean, I, hell, they ran 1-3-1 one, one zones when I was in high school. It's not like it was a new thing out there that <laughs> yeah. you should be able to have a counter to whatever that defense is, and it didn't happen. So, yeah, I could totally see people um, bagging on Cal for that. But at the same time, um, if they make two or three shots here or there, it's a different ball game. But they just couldn't hit anything, and you give all the credit now to Huggins and the defense and put as much um, blame on Cal as you can. When we continue our conversation with Michael Eaves, the day Kobe Bryant died, 
It was Michael who anchored ESPN's coverage of the tragedy from the moments immediately following Kobe's death through the next five and a half hours. Michael takes us behind the scenes of that day at ESPN when Locked on Kentucky continues. If you've been a listener of this podcast, I'm sure you've heard all the great advertisers working with Locked On to reach sports fans. But you may not know that Locked On Kentucky is a great way for your local business to reach passionate UK fans just like you. Unlike any other podcast, Locked On gives your local company the unique ability to reach local podcast listeners. Not just any podcast listener, a Locked On podcast listener. If your company wants to connect with UK fans and a predominantly male audience that is well-educated with disposable income, then let's put your company right here on this Locked On podcast. Local fans love to support local businesses. Text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcast.com forward slash advertising and let us know who you are. We'll get our team to help your team achieve Locked On advertising success. Once again, text the word ADVERTISING to 33777 or visit LockedOnPodcasts.com forward slash advertising. We look forward to hearing from you. This is Locked On Kentucky, your team every day. We're back here on the Locked On Kentucky podcast. When Kentucky native Michael Eaves arrived to work on January 26th, He soon found out his day at the office would be unlike any he'd ever experienced before. Word that Kobe Bryant had died was just starting to spread on social media. And we all wanted to know more. Is it true? What happened? How? Well, to get those answers, there really is only one place to turn to at a time like that. ESPN, the worldwide leader in sports. And when we tuned in, we found Michael Eaves delivering the details. Here's Michael now taking us through that day. One of the one of the things I wanted to ask you about, we're talking about hypothetical sort of different types of content, unusual types of content, but you were involved in one that is kind of unthinkable. I mean, you're I I think you were already on SportsCenter when the news came out about Kobe Bryant passing. Is that No, correct? I was I was scheduled to work that day. Okay. And we came on. We came on way earlier than I was scheduled to come on. Once we knew that Kobe had passed away, and then you ended up doing how many hours? Five and a half. Wow, man. So I guess take. I guess just kind of take us through that day. I mean, and you, for, you knew Kobe beforehand as well. Yeah. And for people who don't understand, I mean, people think you know your your job. You might think, yeah, well, I work an eight hour day, or I worked a twelve hour day today, or I worked a double shift, or whatever. And but. The thing about that you have to understand about television is the mental focus that it takes to, to not only be, uh, you know, not fumbling over words and enunciate and all that stuff, but to, to the stuff that's coming up. Like you've got somebody in your ear telling you what's going on. You've got to look ahead to know what's coming up next, where you're going next. And then if you put that, all of that, and then put live on top of it and put improv on top of it so that not everything is scheduled sometime there's some ad lib there's some some dancing some stretching and especially in a live event like that it is very taxing mentally so to do it for five and a half hours is is quite a feat yeah it's not something uh, that you ever get trained for in journalism school i'll tell you that right now yeah um <clears throat> yeah it was the first time in my career that i've had to report the death of someone i knew um so when i moved to la you know in 2003 kobe clearly was there and covering the Lakers as part of the 
my job at Fox Sports West, we had Laker games, so I did a lot of Laker games. And, you know, Kobe and I were cool. I wouldn't say we were friends, but we were cool. Like, we did, we, we have hung out socially, but we didn't talk on the phone or anything like that. But when we saw each other, we always, you know, had a quick conversation here or there and things of that nature. So I knew him. Um, so that's the first time I've had to deal with that. And that was, that's a thing by itself, let alone just the magnitude of the story based on who he was. But no, I was scheduled to be on that day. I was supposed to host the six o'clock sports center that day. And depending on what show it is or what day of the week, when you get in prior to your show is a little different. Usually we're there about five hours before something like that. <clears throat> and I had just gotten to our screening room, which is where we watch all the highlights every day, but that's also where we prepare for each sports center, we have these little things called pods. It's like a group of like eight computers together and producer and graphics and everybody sits in the same area and we talk about it. And I just sat down probably maybe 10 minutes and one of the PAs, one of the people who watch the highlights, the screeners came behind me and she was looking at her phone. She says, this can't be happening, right? And at first I, I didn't pay that much attention to it. I heard it, but I mean, it could have been anything. She could have been talking about, you know, anything on social media, blah, 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 blah. And then as she got farther away from me, she got closer to the other PAs and I started to hear, you know, the volume start to rise and you could just feel a different energy in it. And my boss, Jack Obring, who's one of our coordinating producers, who's, who normally would not have been there, but someone was sick, so he came in to help with a short staff. And I looked at him and I was like, did Kobe die? And he said, yeah, we think so, go get dressed. So literally, I had not been in my mm. seat 15 minutes I go get dressed, do a quick makeup uh, session, and I'm on the set, and I deliver the news that Kobe died. From the time I sat down to the time I said those first words on ESPN or ESPN2, whatever. We were on ESPN2 because the Pro Bowl is on E1. Um, it probably was 30 minutes max. Wow. Right? So you're processing the fact of what just happened. Like, how in the hell did Kobe die with his daughter? And at that time, you didn't know how many people were on the helicopter because there was reports that all three of his kids were on there, which was, you know, so irresponsible, but all this other stuff. So you're trying to process information while gather information and then get prepared to go out there. And when we started the show, it's not a show, we started a breaking news coverage. It was me and Zubin Mahenti. We did the first two hours of that coverage without one commercial. Mm, wow. And all it is was us giving information and going to interviews. Nothing was prepared for this show. No one's going to, have stuff sitting around in case Kobe dies at 40-something years old. That's not how no. television is done. It's, it's different when Muhammad Ali died. We right. have been prepared for that for years, quite honestly. We had all this content ready, and then we got tipped off that it was going to happen before we came on the air that day. But Kobe, you're not prepared for that. So it's literally giving the news of what we know, and then a producer would say, all right, we've got Stephen A. Smith. We've got Ramona Shelburne. We've got Adrian Wojnarowski. We've got Spike Lee. We've got Tim Leglet. Like It's just rapid fire these interviews are coming out of us. Hey, now we're going to go to uh, LA. They're having a live press conference with the fire department. Boom. Oh, now we got to do a simulcast on E1 with Cassidy Hubbard and Paul Pierce. Boom. Like all that's just happening and you have to deal with it as it's happening. Right. And I, as you said earlier, Dan, the, the average person doesn't understand what that involves from doing a television standpoint, but there was not one scripted word that was said on that show that Zubin and I did for five and a half hours. Not <laughs> yeah. What, that what's is remarkable. What stands out? What What is your sort of lasting memory of that day, um, just personally for you? Um, the magnitude of the story and how much we did with zero preparation. 
Yeah. That's, and I'm not trying to like pat myself on the back or Zubin on the back because that, that is literally what we are paid to do. Okay. On SportsCenter, it is a news show and you have to be prepared for live breaking news. And that's where you really earn your money. All the other stuff is having a nice personality and hoping people enjoy watching you so they'll tune in and we get a good ratings number. But when something like that happens, people come to us, right? And that's when you really earn the money that you're paid. And for us to be able to pull it off as well as we did, um, I'm, very, I'm very proud of that moment, although I wish it never happened. You know, Had, had, right? it, ever, had it ever occurred to you in the way that it probably did that day that the whole world was watching? what you were doing? I mean, you know, on a given day, you obviously have a large audience, no matter when you're doing SportsCenter or anything yeah, else I, on ESPN. But that, I mean, like you said, it, people come to you. When, when somebody hears Kobe Bryant died, they're, if they're going to turn on the TV, they're going to, to you. Yeah, it, it did. I understood that pretty early just because of the magnitude. And as you said, who it was, it was Kobe. Like, you know, CNN did coverage, ABC News did coverage, but they didn't do the amount of coverage that we did, and they didn't do it nearly as well as we did either. And if you're thinking of something relative to sports, you're going to turn to us. Same thing with Muhammad Ali. Like our coverage of his funeral, especially, and, and the hours following his, his death, um, it's ESPN you're going to go to just because we have the most perspective and the most people to be able to do it and the content, things of that nature. But also in that, in that moment, I'm also paying attention to social media because I'm trying to gather information or potential stuff like this. And so I'm, I'm seeing people respond to our coverage you know, in real time on social media. Plus my phone is now blowing up from yeah. certain people like Charles Barkley's hit me up and Brian Shaw and other people that hit my phone up as I'm doing this. So I'm also under that also drove home. Everybody's watching us right now. Let's give them the information we have and be very careful because we had heard that same report that came out about Kobe's other children being on that, on that helicopter. And we did not have it confirmed. And also I didn't think it was, it didn't feel right to me. I can't tell you why. I just, all the other information I'm getting, da, 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 I was like, all right, that makes sense. That makes sense. Because he'd been flying those helicopters for years. I mean, he was still doing it. He did it when he was with the Lakers. But to have all of them on there to go to this basketball game, that didn't make sense to me. It didn't feel right. So I'm like, we are not going to get anything wrong. We might not have it first, but I'll, I'll be damned if I get it wrong. And yeah. because, as you said, I knew everyone was watching us, and I did not want to be that person. Well, you could catch Michael Eves on SportsCenter. Just flip it on there and on ESPN, ESPN2. You'll find him uh, also on Twitter, at Michael Eves. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to do this. We really appreciate it. And uh, hopefully, you know, your family's safe and everyone around you uh, is able to avoid this. And hopefully we get back to normal soon. Sounds good, guys. Appreciate the time, man. All right. Thank you, Michael. Well, great stuff from Michael. I last got to see him, I guess it was uh, last year. Um, well, it might have been the year before that. It was when longtime WKYT sports anchor Rob Bromley retired. Michael flew in for Rob's retirement party, and then a group of us, including Rob, moved the party to Malone's, and I got a chance to visit with Michael a little bit more. Really good guy. Definitely an ambassador for Kentucky at ESPN. And isn't it nice to have someone from Kentucky who went to UK as one of the main anchors at ESPN? So again, our thanks to Michael. And thanks to you for listening. Have a great weekend. Stay safe, folks. Be smart. Speaking of smart, tell your smart device to play the latest episode of Locked On NFL Draft. Hey, you never know, you might catch them talking about Lynn Bowden or Logan Stenberg. We'll talk to you again on Monday.
Locked On Kentucky. Available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or tell Alexa or Google to play podcast Locked On. Don't worry, I won't finish. You get the idea.